Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series that we launched last week on the Book of Acts. And here, Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers are going to discuss Acts 1, and specifically, they'll be talking around the topics of ascension and the apostolate. We've also included two PDFs that we think will help you in your reading of Acts that you can check out there in the show notes. If you haven't yet, please sign up for our newsletter, In Medias Race. In Medias Race is a weekly email that we send every Tuesday that includes a video a week ahead of time before it comes out on YouTube, as well as articles, podcasts, and other thoughts from Peter Lightheart for the week. And if you use that link down there in the show notes, we will send you a free ebook from Peter Lightheart when you sign up. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by it. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the Ascension and the Apostolate in Acts chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is handling the technical side of things making sure the recordings run and everything gets edited and smoothed out for your consumption. We have begun a new series of podcasts on the book of Acts. And last week, we spent some time talking about the book of Acts in general, talked about the shape of the book of Acts, what's covered there, what its uses are within the church. And surely we'll be continuing to talk about all of those things as we we go through this series on Acts. We also talked about the relationship between Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. Luke is the author of both books, and the two books are designed to be read together. Luke addresses Theophilus at the beginning of each book, and the two books uh, are integrated in various ways, as we talked about in in the last episode. Today, we're going to be looking at the first chapter of the book of Acts and uh, discussing the episodes there. Several things occur apart from the introduction in the first couple of verses uh, where uh, Luke is again addressing Theophilus about his intentions in writing. Uh, Luke records uh, several events. One is the uh, continuing relationship between Jesus and his apostles during the 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, before his ascension. Luke also records the ascension of Jesus in chapter 1, and then also records uh, in about half of the chapter is taken up with a an account of the selection of the a replacement apostle for Judas, and it's the description of a gathering of disciples in in an upper room in Jerusalem, and the process that they go through in order to replace Judas and restore the apostolate to the number twelve, the the number of the tribes of Israel. I have to say that uh, although the there's uh, obviously theologically weighty, historically weighty events that are recorded here, particularly the Ascension, which is huge, of course. Uh, it's always felt to me that Acts 1 is a bit of a an interim, a bit of a, a parenthesis uh, between the end of Luke and the, and the really big event that's just on the horizon, which is the coming of the Spirit. And Acts chapter 1 actually gives us, I think, a hint of that, makes us think of this chapter as a kind of parenthesis, as a, as a, as a waiting period. Uh, because Jesus tells the disciples that they should wait for the promise of the Father, that's in Acts one four, 
Uh, and so we're the text itself kind of encourages us to look ahead to the next chapter to for the big thing that's happening next. But uh, obviously, chapter one is here for a reason. Acts could have begun with the event of Pentecost. It doesn't. And something important is going on here that is part of the uh, the preparation, as it were, for Pentecost. And I, one of the things that I want to highlight at the beginning, we, we talked about other dimensions of this, but one of the things that struck me as I was going over the passage in preparation for this is the, the fact that there's a 40-day period between the, the uh, resurrection and the ascension, and then another 10 days until Pentecost occurs, which is, takes place on the Feast of Pentecost 50 days after Passover. But you have this, this 40-day period, which obviously resonates with all the other 40 periods of uh, the Old Testament we have the, and, and the New, the 40 years of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, uh, the 40 days of Jesus in the desert um, uh, where he's in conflict with Satan. And so you have some kind of uh, designated period of preparation, and you know it's, uh, the forties. Forties often associated with with a an exile in the wilderness and conflict with Satan. And I think that part of what's happening here is we have the the formation of the apostles. Uh, Jesus is teaching them. Jesus is uh, proving to them the resurrection. And by the end of the chapter, we actually have some evidence, beginning to have some evidence of the effect of this period of preparation, because Peter is able to get up in the midst of these apostles, and he begins to speak, and he begins to make plans for restoring the the lost apostle, uh, and he interprets scripture to apply it to that situation. And so during this 40-day period, we move from apostles who are, as uh, Jeff said in the last episode, apostles who are frightened, apostles who are silent at the end of the gospels, apostles who have not been active, during the whole period of Jesus' trial and death and resurrection, and now they are becoming active again. So this 40-day period is a period for the apostles to take form, the apostolate to take form, who are going to be the leaders and the main agents of the the continuation of Jesus' ministry in the book of Acts. There is a 40-day period before the 40-day period that we typically think of at the beginning of the gospel, the 40-day period where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And that period is the period prior to the presentation in the temple. And according to the law of Leviticus chapter 12, there was this 40-day period prior to the presentation of a male child within the temple. And that period, I think, also helps to solidify one of the themes that we see within the Gospel of Luke, which is the parallel between Christ's birth and his death, that Christ is wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. He's wrapped in linen garments, laid in a tomb. There's a Mary and Joseph at his birth. There's a Mary and Joseph at his death and many other connections like that. But this, I think, is one of those connections that before Christ enters into the heavenly temple, there is a 40 day waiting period, much as there is between his birth and his presentation in the temple at the beginning of the book of Luke. And that connection also, I think, helps us maybe to think about connections between what happens in the presentation in the temple and why Luke includes it and the ministry of the church on the day of Pentecost, that as Simeon declares the glory of Christ and his fulfillment of all the promises of God to his people, so Another Simeon, the one other person who's called Simeon within the corpus of Luke, Simon Peter, um, declares the character of Christ to the people on the day of Pentecost. The other thing that, to answer your um, question about why we have this particular chapter here, 
it has always struck me as strange too. But there is one other book that it reminds me of, which is the book of First Kings. The book of First Kings begins with a king who's on the throne but about to depart, and the establishment of the dynasty in the dynasty that's founded upon him after him. And that's the story of David and the succession of Solomon. And there are many details, I think, of this story that harken back to that one. There is this interim period, particularly in chapter two of First Kings, where there's removing certain people from office and putting other people in their place. And perhaps the one character that is reminiscent of Judas in the way that he's described here is Joab. Joab is removed from his office, replaced by Ben-Nai, the son of Jehoiada. And then Joab is buried within his desert house in the same way as we're told that Judas let his house be made desolate, let another take his office. And we think about Joab a bit more and there's a poetic justice to what happens to Judas. He splits open, his guts come out and there's a connection with the field of blood. And Joab despises betrayed Amasa with a kiss, stabbed him so that his guts came out, and he bled out in a field. And it seems to me that Luke wants us to draw that connection to see the similarity between the establishment of David's kingdom and the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. And of course, what happens in chapter 3 of First Kings helps us to understand another parallel with what happens in chapter 2 of Acts. It's the gift of the Spirit, the gift of wisdom into Solomon, and then the gift of the Spirit of wisdom to the church, which will establish their kingdom, the rule of David. I think that link to Solomon is, is helpful. I also think it's drawn out numerically in the first chapter here. In verse 15, um, we, we're told that the company of persons was in all about 120 and um, that has various significances, but it's particularly connected with Solomon and the establishment of his temple. He is said to sacrifice 120,000 sheep, and he is given 120 talents of gold um, from the Queen of Sheba, and the porch of his temple is 120 cubits. And then afterwards, when the temple is inaugurated, there are 120 priests who are said to uh, consecrate it in, in song and in worship. And, and so... That seems to be reflexive numerically in this text. Yeah, and another reinforcement of the uh, of this. You mentioned uh, Joab and Amasa, but there are there's several places in Samuel where people die from some kind of belly wound, some kind of stab to the belly, and you have connections with other betrayers of David that are um, kind of rolled together in the death of Judas, and he's he's the betrayer of the greater David. And. The fact that it's included here in the beginning of Acts and Peter's speech has this long section about Judas. Uh, might it also not just look back, but look forward? Because this is the first of many antagonists that arise from within the covenant community, certainly not the last. And you mentioned some in the old covenant community. and But if we remember Psalm 69, for example, or Psalm 109, shortly we're going to have the enemies of the kingdom of God being primarily not the Romans, uh, not the Gentiles, but people from within the covenant community, the priests, the chief priests, the scribes, the rulers, the elders, but then also even within the church. So you have Ananias and Sapphira, and then there's this uh, 
constant war- Simon the Sorcerer in Acts 8. And then there's this constant kind of oh, I warning about uh, things, particularly with regard to Judas and money. And most of these things are about money and, and property and riches. Most of the, uh, the uh, opponents of the church are worried about protecting their own interest, their own financial interests in some ways. And so you, you get this in the book of Acts, protecting their status or whatever. And so maybe it's important for Luke to include this early on so that you inject this realism into uh, the story here. This is this is not the last time this is going to happen. Yeah, and I think I, to pick up on that, uh, that section of the chapter, Peter's speech, what, one of the things that struck me about it is the echo that you have in Peter's speech of what Jesus has been saying after his resurrection. You go back to the end of Luke and uh, on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, Jesus says, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die and be raised again. His repentance for forgiveness of sin should be preached to the Gentiles. He says it to the 11 when he appears to them. Uh, And Peter, a couple of times here, uses the same kind of language. It was necessary that, verse 21, necessary that of the men who had accompanied us all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, uh, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, necessary that somebody replaced Judas. It was, was, uh, he speaks in similar terms. Scripture had to be fulfilled in verse 16. And then he quotes from these these two Psalms. He's reading the Psalms as Christological prophecies, uh, which is something that Jesus has just taught him to do. Uh, interestingly, in both cases, these are imprecations within the Psalms. Uh, there's a quotation from Psalm 109. What's the other quotation? What's the other Psalm quotation? 69, right. Both, both, they're both imprecations uh, against well, Psalm 69 is uh, quite clearly, uh, it's quoted in the Gospels as a, as a prophecy about Jesus. And then this is a curse that's pronounced against his betrayers and those who oppose him. Uh, but Peter's now reading those Psalms uh, as prophecies of Christ uh, and is seeing the same kind of uh, scripting of both Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the actions of the apostles are now uh, being script. He's reading that script in the, in the Psalms. Uh, so what they're doing, uh, in a sense, he's, he's very self-consciously fulfilling a scripture let another take his office. That means that we have to do this because this was. It is necessary that someone take this take the place of Judas. Uh, so they're seeing. They're not only beginning to read the scriptures as Jesus has taught them, but Peter is now reading the the work of the apostles into that reading of scripture that Jesus has taught them. You have that also in Acts four when Peter and John are released, and then they interpret Psalm two as. He- as being fulfilled in the city gathered against Jesus uh, and against them. Maybe could you raise a, a sort of a practical question? To what extent would we say Peter's use of Scripture here is uh, formative and to be an example for us? Or to put it more specifically, I mean, if, if we do take that view, then where, where are the breaks on, on this thing? Where, where do we um, kind of control our reading of the Old Testament and our use of it? I know of a church quite recently which had to um, get rid of its its uh, pastor um, for various reasons of, of betrayal, actually, and, and that church was financially supporting um, his children who were in a very vulnerable state at, at the time. Now, 
suppose that church had said on the strength of Psalm 109, uh, where betrayal has taken place, you know, um, uh, let his children wander about and beg, let them seek food far from the ruins and, and, and so forth. You know, what if they had used that as a proof text for abandoning support of that family? Um, I'm asking that not to be difficult, but just, just to try and flesh out some of the um, problems uh, inherent in it. Yeah, I think one baseline thing that I would say at the beginning is that uh, there's a there's a particular set of events that are the focal point of all of all of the Old Testament scriptures, which are the things that are recorded in the New Testament. So I don't think you quote these passages, certainly not with the same force and saying uh, and say, as Peter does, uh, this is the fulfillment of what these scriptures say uh, about some betrayal that happens in a in a 21st century church. The scriptures were about the Christ uh, and those who are, I think uh, what Peter is doing is those, those who are immediately associated with Christ, those events, if they, and they will apply and they do inform uh, the church throughout the ages, but not as directly. And it doesn't have the same kind of scripting, the same kind of determination of scripting that you find in, uh, in the gospels or acts. So that would at least be a baseline observation. Whatever we say about it, we'd, want to do it more loosely. Uh, and, and because of that, I want, I think we'd also want to say that there are, I don't think the implications of the Psalms are forbidden to Christians. I think Christians should pray and sing the implications of the Psalms. But um, because those Psalms don't have the same direct application to our situations they had to the, the situation of, the, of uh, Jesus and his apostles, because of that, I think you have to you have to loosen that and and uh, look at situations in the light of broader biblical standards and broader big, biblical commands. Um, now, one of which is to take care of those who are weak and helpless. So that doesn't answer the specific question, maybe, but those would be a couple of the parameters I'd want to bring up. And when we're reading about characters like Peter, I think it can be very easy to see them within a generic mold of faithful witness or something like that. Whereas it seems to me that a character like John the Baptist might be a better mold in which to think of. John the Baptist probably resembles characters like Samuel more than any others, Samuel and Elijah, who perform a very unique task within redemptive history. They're not just generic prophets. John the Baptist is performing the role of passing on the baton, as it were, from the Old Testament prophets to Christ. He's the one through whom Christ is made manifest at his baptism. And here I think there's something similar about the apostles. The apostles are establishing the foundations for um, the church is built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And there is a return to the foundations at this point, a return to John the Baptist and his ministry, a return to people who had witnessed the ministry of Christ from that point. And so I'm wary of taking these as more gener generic examples of how prophets or teachers should be like. In characters like Peter and Paul, there is something more akin to John the Baptist, people who are filling a very unique role within redemptive history that is not just mm -hmm. exemplary, but unique. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're saying the difference isn't so much that Peter had this extra authority whereby he could do unusual things with scripture. Rather, P 
Peter's context was more sort of directly the reference point of a whole body and swathe of, of Old Testament scripture. Yes. Right. That's that's yeah. that's summarizing what I was getting at, yeah. So there's another question here at the end of Acts 1, this need to have 12. Um, surely goes back to Luke 22, where Jesus told the disciples at the time, um, you are those, it's 22, 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on twelve, or sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there's this need for the apostles to be twelve, uh, but yet also interestingly, not one from each of the twelve tribes of Israel, but just twelve. Uh, it seems like that's uh, symbolic, uh, at least symbolic. But there's no hint here of a restoration of. Uh, tribal leadership, 12 tribal leaders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing we could, and I think that, I think that's right, Jeff, that uh, the 12 is the, the symbolic number 12 is important, making the connection with, with Israel. They are patriarchs of a sword, foundation stones, uh, fathers over the, uh, the church, but uh, certainly not in the same, don't have the same tribal structure, but you already had adjustments in, identifications prior to this. You still have people identified by tribe in, in the New Testament, uh, but that was not the only, I mean, in, in one sense, everybody's a, everybody's a Jew, which is everybody's included within the honorifically part of the tribe of Judah, uh, part of the part, part of the royal tribe. So I think there's already hints of that in the, in the Old Testament, but I would, yeah, I agree with that, that we're, we're in an Israel, but without, without a tribal structure to it. That raises the question of how Paul might fit in as a 13th, there have been some unusual suggestions that Peter here is misguided in chapter one in his appointment of someone and should have waited for the appointment of Paul. That is an unusual interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> I've encountered it on several occasions. No, oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, uh, things, if you, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, James. Well, one of the things that the appointment of Paul does create is this unusual tension between a 12 and a 13 uh, count of the apostles, which is also present in the Old Testament in the sense that the tribes can be counted as 12 or can be counted as 13, dependent on how you count Joseph's sons and various other things too. Yeah, that's that's the point I was going to make too, uh, how you count Joseph's sons. And then we do, you look at tribal areas and uh, there's there's different ways of counting who the tribes are. Levi doesn't have a tribal area, but Manasseh's got two tribal areas. So there's, yeah, there's again, uh, there's not a, there's not a clean twelve tribes. That's that's the that's the symbol of Israel is the twelve is the number twelve, but the actual uh, organization of different clans and tribes is uh, is more complicated. That's the direction I was going to go. I don't I don't know uh, specifically how that might illuminate what's happening with Paul, but maybe we can. Uh, put that in the back burner and, and think about it when we get to chapter nine. Uh, I wanted to go, I, I didn't want to skip over the first few verses of chapter one or the first half of chapter one, really. We've been focusing attention a lot on what's happening with the apostles and and uh, Judas and the replacement of Judas. But of course, the opening 
section of uh, Acts chapter one is about Jesus remaining with the apostles. We talked about that a little bit, but then also about the ascension, uh, which is a crucial and often neglected episode in the work of Jesus. Uh, Alistair has uh, pointed to the fact that this is uh, this is the uh, entry into the heavenly temple, which is the way that the book of Hebrews describes it. It's also a, a kind of, uh, it's an exaltation, obviously, as king and ruler. He's put uh, above all rule and authority and power in heavenly places, but didn't want to leave that behind and uh, just, just focus on the second of the chapter because the ascension is crucial. What do you make of some of the details here? We have um, Jesus disappears into a cloud. We have a couple of men show up and uh, and uh, quiz the apostles about why are they still star- why are they still staring up the men announce that there is that Jesus is going to return what's that a reference to a series of questions to probe that that part of the text it's difficult not to think about an altar here and uh, Jesus ascending into the cloud the cloudy presence of God represented on the altar so that this is the kind of concluding uh, fulfillment of everything that went on in these uh, communion sites, these altars in Israel. Jesus is ascending into uh, the cloud and being incorporated into this glory cloud presence. Um, and then there's two men because he's ascending up through the blue curtain, through the firmament. And there's two men, two cherubim, if you will, like in the in the temple or tabernacle, standing there to, uh, uh, they don't guard him. They don't prevent him from coming up. They actually explain why he's coming up. And then, and then there's the, uh, the promise that he will come so that every, every sacrifice, every offering has this uh, promise that you memorialize God, you cause the animal to ascend, to turn into smoke, and then God comes to you. God will come in faithfulness to his promise. So I see at least some Mm -hmm. of that here. The ascension is an event that's appealed to in the context of the day of Pentecost as well to explain what's taking place. The Ascension and Pentecost seem to be two sides of the same reality. And I think we can have some sense of how they fit together by looking at the Old Testament with the Ascension of Elijah, for instance, being the event whereby Elisha is clothed clothed with power from on high and Elisha continues the ministry of Elijah. And here I think we're having a similar framework that's being employed, along with the fact that we have previously seen someone ascend into a cloud and receive something and then deliver it to the people, being Moses as he ascends to the cloud on Mount Sinai, receives the law and then delivers it to the people. And it appears to me that Luke is trying to draw connections between what's taking place in the ministry of Christ and his ascension, and then what took place in the ministry of Moses and his ascension to God's presence. Comparisons and contrasts, which are particularly drawn out in the following chapter. Yeah, and just a quick comment here. Remember, too, that uh, the ascension of Moses into the cloud is then made, uh, is ritualized at the end of Exodus 20, I believe it is, where you have this mobile mountain, which is the Mitzbeach, the communion site, the altar, which uh, uh, means that the animals ascending into 
on that altar, on those uncut stones, represent a recapitulation of Moses going up. So there's a connection here with what I was saying, too, about altars and mm-hmm. ascension. And this, this ascension of every sacrifice is, in a sense, a, a, a small-scale day of atonement. You can see Jesus as the priest entering into the cloud of incense smoke past the cherubim, as Jeff said, uh, and entering into the heavenly most holy place, which is, again, the Hebrews' the Hebrews take on this. Or to change the paradigm, you've got, a, you've got a mosaic ascension, but you also have a later Moses figure, Elijah, who ascends uh, and then uh, in his ascension leaves behind his mantle and bestows a double portion of his spirit on Elisha. And so you have this, and again, as Alistair said with Moses, you have this relationship between the ascension of Jesus and the gift of the spirit. Jesus ascends as an Elijah figure. The, the, the uh, apostles are the Elijah the apostles are the Elisha who receive his uh, receive his spirit and carry on his mission. These connections, I think, are quite helpful from the disciples' perspective. They could easily have seen the ascension of Jesus as a, a loss of power as far as they were concerned. How are we going to do things without Jesus? But as I think Jeff pointed out last time round, that, that's not what's going on here. We can easily, as Christians, I guess, get, despondent and think, you know, the world's in such a mess. What's the point? Let's just wait for Jesus to come back. But that's refuted very strongly, isn't it, in verses 6 onwards. The disciples ask to know the times or seasons in verse 7 now that the Father has has fixed, essentially. Um, But what they're given in verse 8 instead is something far better. They are given power um, and they're given a a call to action. C.H. Spurgeon gave a great um, sermon based on chapter 11 of verse 1, which was directed largely towards the Brethren Assemblies. And I feel able to say this because I attend a Brethren Assembly. He entitled it, O ye men of Plymouth, why ye stand ye gazing into heaven? Which I think is a fantastic (laughs) title. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I also want to emphasize the, uh, and, and think about the, the centrality of the ascension in the work of Christ. It gets short shrift, unfortunately, uh, in liturgical uh, life. Ascension Day doesn't have the same uh, liturgical stature that Christmas and Easter do, or even Pentecost. Pentecost tends to be uh, celebrated more fully. Uh, ascension Day has the misfortune of, uh, of falling on a weekday. That's part of the reason why it doesn't get the same same sort of attention. But I think even theologically, there's been a tendency to not to minimize, but to not not to recognize the full weight of the ascension of Jesus as the the goal, the ascension along with the gift of the Spirit, as the goal of Jesus' entire ministry. This is something that's been emphasized by a number of recent uh, writers. Matthew Bates is one who's been emphasizing the the content of the gospel being the kingship of Jesus. That's the announcement. Uh, Jesus is Lord uh, the good news is that there is a ruler in heaven who is good, a ruler in heaven who has uh, suffered at the hands of tyrants, but has overcome and is now reigning, uh, a ruler in heaven who is uh, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. That is the gospel announcement, that uh, Jesus is king. And when we stop at the cross and everything happens at the cross without the resurrection, we miss uh, crucial things about what the gospel is. Uh, and then when we stop at the resurrection without going forward and saying the resurrection is 
the first stage of Jesus' return to the Father, or actually the cross is the first stage, but the resurrection is a stage of his new life and his glorification. But we can't stop with the resurrection because that comes to its climax in his enthronement and the gift of the Spirit. So somehow liturgically, we have to, we have to find ways to, uh, th- liturgically, theologically, pastorally, uh, sermonically, we have to find ways of uh, reminding people constantly that Jesus is king and that that is, in fact, the central message of the gospel, that uh, Jesus is ascended and is reigning. Does anyone have any thoughts on the geographic situation of this, that within Luke, you have um, going out to Bethany in the Gospel of Luke. Here you have the Mount of Olivet. And in the other Gospels, the final scenes focus upon Galilee. Um, Here they're referred to as men of Galilee, but the final scenes of Christ's ministry occur in the context of the Mount of Olivet. How do we, first of all, reconcile these two accounts? And why does Luke tell an account that gives this particular geographical emphasis when he could have told it in the same way as the other Gospels? I suspect you might have thoughts on it, Alistair. I don't. Um, It's not a question I've looked into enough. So it was just, it occurred to me reading it here, having just gone through Matthew and Mark. I think, first of all, the accounts can be harmonized by looking at the end of Luke where there may be an extra, the ascent, the account of the ascension can be seen as a different scene. They're told to stay in Jerusalem until they're clothed with power and on high, from on high. That could be delivered in Galilee. And then they return to Jerusalem. He leads them out as far as Bethany. And then we can see the juxtaposition that we've had throughout the Gospels between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, that it's a fitting occasion for him to be it's a fitting location for him to ascend from. And then they stay in Jerusalem from that point. But the interesting thing for me is why these particular geographical emphases in Matthew and Mark, it seems to bring you back to the very beginning of the story. They're regrouping at the site where they were first called. Um, And then in John, there's a sort of recommissioning of Peter within that location. And, uh, um, restoration after he has denied Christ those three times. So maybe that's the explanation. And then the importance in Luke that they're waiting and that waiting occurs in the context of Jerusalem, um, whereas it would be an extra kink at the end of the story of Mark for the setting, for the beginning of the story of Acts, it's very important for Luke that they go back to Jerusalem at that point. Well, also him uh, being lifted up and into a cloud surely also connects with Daniel 7, where Daniel sees uh, one like the Son of Man with the clouds of heaven coming to the Ancient of Days and being presented before him. That passage often misunderstood to refer to his coming at the end of history, his uh, so-called seven, second coming. But this is clearly um, him coming to the Father to receive a kingdom. And the fascinating thing about Daniel 7 is that it's the Son of Man, but later on when the vision is interpreted for Daniel, uh, the Son of Man is a composite image. Uh, It's not just Jesus, but it's the saints. It's the holy ones who are united with him, who are also judgment was given to them or for them by the Most High, and they possess the kingdom. 
which connects as well with Acts 2, when it's not just Jesus who will ascend in heaven, but we reign with him. The apostles reign with him uh, and are the means, the uh, ambassadors, the way in which the kingdom is implemented uh, as time moves on in the book of Acts. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.